Well, could I say what a pleasure it is to be with you tonight, and could I thank Philip for the warmth of his welcome. Uh, Philip and Bellan and the family's friendship means an awful lot to Thelma and myself. It's, it's unfortunate that we're not just living opposite them anymore, uh, but nonetheless, they're dear friends, even though he does exaggerate about me. I mean, last week he told you that I'd been in Kells for 50 years. Now, let me ask you this. If the pair of us were standing beside each other, which one looks as though he's been here for 50 years? <laughs> and then he's, he's misled you again tonight because he told you that I've got a dose of the cold. Men don't get the cold. It's not COVID, don't worry. I've been well tested. Uh, but it's, neither is it a reaction to the two jabs I had yesterday because men don't have reactions. What men get is something altogether more serious, man flu. And uh, that's, what, that's what we have at the minute. But anyhow, it is really, really a great pleasure to be with you tonight. Now, the last few years have been exceptionally difficult years in our world. So many things have been happening. Wars, rumors of wars, pandemic, all kinds of strange goings on with the weather. And even our farming community this last year has found it very difficult. The weather this year has been awkward and strange. Now, I have no doubt that all of these things come from the hand of God. Because as a society and as a world, we have turned our back on him. And by our behavior, we have mocked him. And God is not mocked. So he is speaking in wrath to our world. But he doesn't do that in a, a nasty, vindictive way. God speaks in order that people might turn away from sin and turn back to him. And in a real sense, having thundered in wrath, he then comes along and he, he whispers words of love and words of encouragement. And this book of Hosea uh, really shows us that. Yes, uh, there are times when the prophet thunders the way many of the Old Testament prophets do. But here in the last chapter, we see him pleading lovingly with the people of Israel. And he had done that himself back in chapter 3. You'll remember that Hosea uh, was told by God to, to go and marry a prostitute, Gomer one who betrayed him, one who was unfaithful, one who took his love and threw it back in his face. And in chapter three, he, he buys her back. And he really pleads with her, calls on her to return with him to the family home and to begin their relationship all over again. And in chapter 14 here, the prophet Hosea is calling on Israel to leave all her wayward lovers and to come back to God in repentance. They have wandered far from him, but he wants them back. And I suppose that's the message that we have to take on board, that God is speaking to our nation. He's speaking to our world. And he's saying, 
come back to me. And so the first thing we're going to look at tonight is a call to true repentance in verses 1 to 3 of Hosea 14. You see, if these wayward people of Israel are to be restored to close fellowship with God and all the blessings that go with that, then there's one thing that is absolutely vital. There has to be genuine repentance. James Montgomery Boyce states that this involves both a frank confession of sin and a radical return to God. In other words, the call return, O Israel, to the Lord your God must be answered in a real meaningful way. And, you know, if you were to turn back to chapter 6 to the start of it, you would see there what I would refer to as a burst of phony repentance from the people. Verses 1 to 4 of chapter 6, come let us return to the Lord, they said. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Lovely words. You know what? They were simply empty words. They knew that only God could bless them, so they made a a whole show of calling on him, but there was no genuine repentance. There was no real awareness of sin. There was no turning away from it. It was just a lot of hot air blown into the ether. And Hosea here in chapter 14 spells out to them how genuine repentance is different from this. And so we need to ask, what does this genuine repentance involve? Well, first of all, it involves a genuine awareness of sin. Return, O Israel, the prophet says, to the Lord your God, your sins have been your downfall. Their sins have brought them to their knees, as it were. Their sins have crippled them as a nation. And they have to recognize that. They have to recognize that sin is sin and that sin is always serious. It's not some trifling little thing that doesn't matter at all. It's an affront to Almighty God Himself, an insult to His holiness, and it has caused the decline and the fall of their nation. Because of sin, the Assyrians are going to come marching across their land. Because of sin, their economy is in a mess. Because of sin, God is no longer smiling on them. Does that not sound familiar to us? As we live in Northern Ireland and in the United Kingdom in the 21st century. And you know, the very word that Hosea uses for sin in verse 1 really spells out what it's all about. He uses the word iniquity, iniquity. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Uh, Boyce remarks that that is an ugly word which rightly describes sin's nature because sin is ugly. I just fear that so often we 
are cavalier about sin nowadays. It doesn't really matter to us. We don't grasp the seriousness of it or the ugliness of it. Let's face it. It was sin that caused Christ to hang on the cross. It was sin that caused him to be disfigured, to be brutalized. It was my sin that he took upon himself. It was my punishment that he bore. And, you know, true repentance, whether we're talking about coming to Christ for the first time or returning to him after walking in the wilderness for a time, always begins with a genuine, real acknowledgement of the seriousness of your own personal sin. A genuine recognition that it is ugly and offensive in the eyes of a holy God. A genuine confession that you're a sinner, not just other people. Oh, there's such a tendency, isn't there, to, to look at others and to say, they're the real sinners. I'm not as bad as they are. Don't compare yourself to others. Measure yourself against the perfection of God and of Christ. Measure yourself against the law of God that you might have a genuine awareness of sin. But then the second thing that is involved here in genuine true repentance is a genuine appeal to the grace of God. You'll see it there in verse 2. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Voice again says, this means that we must come to God solely on the basis of his grace, not imagining that in spite of our sins, there is nevertheless some merit in us to commend us to God, not even the fact that we've repented of our sins and appealed to his mercy. You get that? The grace of God is the key thing. God's unmerited favor. God being willing to give you that which you don't deserve. And in repentance, you are throwing yourself upon the grace of God demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, so often in so-called repentance, a person will say, look, God, I failed you in this way or in this area. And you know, I am sorry but then they rush on to say, look, Lord, there are other areas in which I've been good. Because so often people have this notion of God holding up a scales of justice at the end of the day. And their wicked deeds will be on one side and their good deeds will be on the other. And as long as their good deeds outweigh their bad ones, they'll be all right. It's not like that. The slightest sin the size of a grain of sand will outweigh all the good things you might do. Because it is reprehensible in the eyes of God. And true repentance involves admitting that there is nothing good in you at all. There's nothing that would force God to forgive you. You come saying, I am appealing to your grace alone, O oh God, 
I am crying out to the Christ who died to save the unworthy. And then the third element here, verse 3, there's a genuine turning from specific sins. You know, it's one thing to know that your sin is serious and to say you're sorrow, sorry. It's another thing entirely to turn away from it. And that's what the word repentance means. It is a turning away from sin and a turning to Christ. In real repentance, <coughs> words are always, always accompanied by actions. You know, words are cheap, aren't they? But action is costly. And these people needed to recognize their sin and then they had to act. And they had to act in a very specific way. You know, it's, it's very easy to repent of sin in general. It is simplicity itself to say, yes, I know I'm a sinner. Lord, forgive me. It's so easy that it can often become nothing more than a shallow formula that is recited like a mantra. I'm a sinner, forgive me. I'm a sinner, forgive me. I'm a sinner, forgive me. And all the time, your life is unaffected because your heart's not in it. You're simply using the words like a magic spell and you think that that will compel God to do your bidding. <coughs> but these people were required by God to do something more. They were required to identify their own specific sins. They were to confront them. They were to seek God's mercy and forgiveness. And they were to turn away from those sins and shun them and push them away as if they were something that totally horrified them and turned their stomachs. These sins were causing them to stumble and fall away from God. And they were the sins, in their case, of trusting in foreign powers rather than in God and in turning to false gods and to idols. So look what they're to say to God here in verse 3. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. For us, what do we need to say? We need to say, no political party can save us. No human philosophy can save us. No amount of military might can save us. All the electric cars and green ventures in the world will not bring salvation to our planet. We cannot call gods the things that we have made with our own hands. And we have to repent. And we have to turn away from them. We have to confess the specific sins to God and determine never, ever again to turn to false alliances and to bow down to the idols. I'm going to say something I said at my own midweek a few weeks ago. 
And you need to understand that I'm saying this as someone who is a unionist and who cherishes the union with the United Kingdom. There surely is no greater blasphemy that a man or a woman can utter than to say, for God and Ulster. It's for God alone. It's for Christ alone. If you put anything alongside God, you're making it an idol. And yes, we want to be good citizens of our land. We want to be faithful to our king, obedient to our government. But first and foremost, we must be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would suggest that one of the big problems for our land that the Lord is speaking loudly about is the fact that we have welded the gospel to a political philosophy. And that has become far, far more important than the glory of Jesus Christ. You know, we who claim to be Christians ought to confess our sin and ought to shun everything that takes us away from Christ. We need to be serious and specific about our confession. We need to confront the sin that is keeping us from fully serving Christ. We need to repudiate it. You know, there's so many possible sins, aren't there? Other than the one I've already highlighted. It could be greed. Well, then repent of it before God and then don't go and buy that extra car. Instead, give away some of your goods to the needy as you're planning to do this harvest time. If it's bitterness and broken relationships, repent of that bitterness and seek out those you feel bitter about and apologize to them. I'd like to say that being offended is a choice. It really is. We're in a world today where everybody's offended like that. Now, somebody can say something that hurts you. Of course they can. But what are you going to do with that? Are you going to let it go? Or are you going to take it into your heart and to turn it over and over and over until it festers and becomes something dreadful and you are offended at every turn? It's just selfishness. It's just idolatry. It really is. So Hosea issues this call to true repentance to his people. And through the word of the living God, our God issues a similar call to true repentance to each and every one of us. But then we're going to look in the second place at a reason for true repentance, verses 48. You know, why, why should anyone repent? Why should anyone come to Christ for the first time? Why should the backslider return? Why should anyone give up all their little idols that they so cherish? Quite simply, because God is a loving, loving father who delights to receive his children back. 
really is that simple. And look at what God says he will do to those who truly repent. He says, I will heal your waywardness. When you repent, God doesn't just forgive you. He actually begins to heal that which causes you to sin in the first place. He comes and he remakes your heart and he remakes your nature so that you won't have the same attraction to sin because our fallen human nature is like a big magnet inside us that's attracted to all the things that are wrong and wicked. But when you come to Christ, Christ takes that magnet and he changes the polarity so that now it's attracted to serving him and loving him and putting him first. And it repels the sin that so easily entangles. You know, people often say to me, I won't become a Christian because I could never keep it up. The truth is you don't have to. When you come to Christ, he will keep you day by day and he will change you day by day so that the old things no longer hold the same attraction that they used to. Now, sometimes there are people when they're converted, there's an immediate transformation. An alcoholic doesn't want to touch the drink again. But more often than not, it's a long, hard struggle. The alcoholic has to fight a battle with the Lord's help every day. Sometimes people are wondrously and gloriously set free from the, the hold of particular sins. At other times, slow. Somebody once said to me, oh, look, if an alcoholic was truly converted, he'd never look near the bottle again. And my answer to that is a simple one. Did you give up gossiping the day you were converted? And the answer most likely is no. It's a long hard battle that's fought with the power of God. Either way, God heals the disease of sin that causes your waywardness and your wandering and your disobedience. He changes your nature and your inclinations by his spirit. He says in the second place, I will love you. Isn't that lovely? Hosea loved Gomer in spite of her prostitution. He paid the price to buy her back, to bring her home. And when she came home, he lavished his love upon her once again. What a picture of God's love. God's love for you. You've wandered, you're a sinner. But the arms of Christ are open wide, calling you to come back, calling you to come for the first time if you've never been saved, calling you to come back to him again if you have wandered and backslidden. Arms of invitation. He says, look, I want to pour love into your life. 
Turn away from the old ways. Turn away from your sin. Come back to me and experience the wonder of divine love, which is so great and so mighty. And then he says in verses 5 to 7, I will cause you to prosper. The simple truth is that those who know, love, and serve Christ prosper, and those who don't, don't. Now, we're not talking about money or material possessions. No promise in the Bible that if you come to Christ, he'll make you rich. We're talking about the things that really, (coughs) really matter. The blessings of God. Peace with him. A purpose in living. Hope for the future. And God here uses lovely, lovely images to describe how he will cause people to prosper when they return to him from the lost highways of sin. Verses 4 to 7. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. Men will dwell again in his shade. He will flourish like the grain. He will blossom like a vine. And his fame will be like the wine from Lebanon. It's a picture of restoration of beauty, isn't it? Blossoming like a lily. Beautiful, beautiful lily. It's a picture of strength. (coughs) Having the roots of the cedars of Lebanon, those mighty, mighty trees with mighty roots going deep, deep down into the source of nourishment. The olive tree that brings value and worth. The fragrance of of cedars, fragrance that causes a delight in the nostrils of God, but more than that, that is effective in witnessing. Men will again dwell in his shade. And there's a picture that is a harvest picture, isn't that flourishing like the grain, blossom like a vine, fame will be like wine from Lebanon. God is saying, look, my people, Stop messing around with the things of the world. Stop playing with sin. Stop sharing your heart and your love with other things. Come back to me. Experience my love in Jesus Christ once again. Put Christ first. And I'm going to open the storehouses of heaven and I'm going to pour out abundance upon you. It's so glorious and others will benefit others as yet unsaved generations as yet unborn will benefit from the godliness in your life have you ever thought of that that the most important thing you can do for your children your grandchildren your great-grandchildren and the ones who will come after them the most important thing you can do is be godly. To turn in wholehearted repentance to Christ and to serve the Lord with all that you have. 
shunning the false gods. That's the most important thing you can do for your own family and for the nation and for this world. Oh, there's so much talk now, isn't there, about how we have to do all sorts of things to save the planet. Not knocking that. It's important to look after the planet. But the most important thing that you can do for the people of our planet is love the Lord and hate sin and be godly. Nothing else will do. See, look at the last verse here. Whoever is wise, he will realize these things. Who is discerning, he will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. True wisdom is the wisdom that points you to Christ. It causes you to turn from other things and to respond in love to his love that you might know his blessing and his power and hope for the dark days that we live in. Let's just pray together. Lord God, we bow before you in sheer adoration. We thank you for Jesus Christ and for his wondrous death. We thank you that he is the Lord of the harvest and not just of the harvest fields where wheat grows, but the harvest of souls. And he stands and he invites and he says, turn from sin and come to me that you would know blessing. And so often we're, we're prone to say, yes, I'm saved. But we don't want to live for him. We don't want to surrender the, the old things that we cherish. Help us to sing and mean Jesus, all for Jesus. All my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender these into your hands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.